TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. And it's just the two of us, Felix. Just the two of us and a very special episode. Indeed. We've done this, I think, every year. It's our opportunity to think about the summer. We're getting ready for the final show, which will be next week with recommendations. But it's our chance to think about what we're looking forward to thinking about over the coming months. I love it for one reason alone, and that is at the end of the summer, I like to look back and see... Did we pick the most important stories? Were we able to see how the stories would evolve? So that alone, I think, is a fabulous exercise and something I love about this particular episode. And this year, we're going to do it a little differently. Yes, we had a great idea, I think. Yeah. Let's see how it's going to work out. Sounds great. Let's go. All right, Felix, stories to watch for the summer. What do you got? So one story I watch will be the split of Sequoia Capital. It came as a big surprise, I think, to everyone. So they will split into three different organizations, one that is focused on the U.S., one that is focused on China, and then one that is focused on India and Southeast Asia. And it's completely fascinating to me the many reasons why they did it. One is portfolio conflict. So Mm -hmm. sometimes an entity in a particular region couldn't really invest in, say, a promising startup because, say, Sequoia Capital in the U.S. already had a competitor. I think this was one of the reasons why the India organization did not invest in razor pay, why some of their investment ideas around no-code or low-code startups didn't really fly the way they wanted. Mm -hmm. There's a second reason, I think, that has to do with the person, the main investor in China who's leading the China organization, Neil Shen, who's just had a wonderful, wonderful career and just contributed in amazing ways to Sequoia. In some sense, his brand is probably as prominent, as important as the Sequoia brand. And so maybe it's in part about the profit-sharing arrangements and the degree to which they now reflect his prominence. But then perhaps most important and most interesting is just the geopolitics of it all. Mm. With the rise in tensions between China and the United States, it's actually, even for investors, it's now maybe a good idea to stay out of each other's lanes. Right. On this last portion, 
I'm not completely convinced that that's going to work so well, in part because if you look at the latest round of financing for the China company, roughly half of its funds come from <laughs> North America. Right. And so how easy it is to separate it out, I think will be seen, but uh, completely interesting and fascinating story to watch for sure. I totally agree. And it came as a surprise. And I love it because I think it heralds maybe two things. One is, I think it tells us that maybe venture capital should be getting back to its roots a little bit. So we have had uh these kind of growth of mega funds. And Sequoia, in some sense, is splitting. And as a consequence, each fund will be, I think, more nimble, which will be closer to the ground better incentives for the reason you laid out, which is the sharing of uh, carry will be, I think, a little bit more fair across these places. And then, of course, we know that geography is incredibly important to venture capital. Mm -hmm. You succeed when you are close by the companies that you are doing. So that all, I think, feels very good, Mm -hmm. almost like a return of VC to its roots. I will say, it's interesting because it came at the same time, Felix, as I believe Andreessen Horowitz announcing a London expansion. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really interesting because I think of Andreessen Horowitz as being the other firm that's really doing interesting stuff in the venture space because they have really added on layers and layers of expertise and costs to their venture capital model. And mm-hmm. by going mm-hmm. into Europe, just as Sequoia is kind of breaking apart, it really seems like we're going to have a nice little experiment to view the results of in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. But I think Sequoia got it just right, and it should be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I agree. So what's one of the stories that you'll be watching me here? Well, I'm afraid you're probably going to be used to this, but I am just so obsessed with pricing, Felix. <laughs> the pricing of everything? <laughs> well, yeah. So over the last 12 months, I've just gotten obsessed with pricing. You know, we talked a little bit about in the context of food and consumer goods, mm-hmm. but pricing has just gotten so fascinating to me. For a long time, I think, in a very low inflation world, people just were asleep at the wheel with pricing. And we have seen such remarkable things happen on pricing. So first, we've seen these price volume trade-offs that people are making. Just as one recent example, Pepsi had organic revenue growth of 14% in the most recent quarter, and that was 17% price and 3% volume declines. And that is a story you can tell for almost all not all, but almost all kind of consumer goods companies. It's like massive price increases and willingness to take pretty big volume hits, upwards of high single-digit volume hits in some cases. So watching how that pans out and watching if they are willing to keep taking those volume declines and what happens to those volume declines. Do they accelerate or do they stabilize? But pricing more generally is getting really interesting. So We see more variable and dynamic pricing in lots of places. Mm -hmm. We see Disney, as one example, going to highly variable and highly dynamic pricing. We see movie theaters going to dynamic pricing and lots of different pricing within a similar theater. I just happened to look up movie theater tickets for a show this weekend, and it was 27 bucks for like not a great seat. And there was highly heterogeneous pricing within that theater. So you see that. And then finally, maybe the most interesting pricing story of all was and will continue to be Tesla. So Tesla has cut prices dramatically Dramatically. at the beginning of the year and now started raising prices again. And Musk has made reference to the idea of dynamic pricing because he feels that he has such good understanding of the customers because they don't have dealers, that he's able to vary price very quickly. And of course, 
one has to wonder if that's at all a good thing. Mm-hmm. Meaning, mm-hmm. <laughs> once you go to dynamic pricing, <laughs> it's not as if the airline industry is a great story of that's value right. maximization. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm making customers understand that, well, wait a second, when a price cut happens, how are they going to respond? Are they going to wait? And then you have to train customers to think about this. So I just think pricing over the summer is going to be fascinating to watch. As inflation comes down, will firms continue to push prices? How much so? Will they be willing to live with volume declines? And then will the Musk experiment with pricing pay off? So lots of things to watch in pricing land. Yeah. It's completely fascinating for all the reasons that you pointed out. And I'm curious how you think about what's going on in pricing and how that's related to the overall health of these companies and these industries. I think beverages is a great example where we have this explosion in the number of brands, mostly reflecting a decline in fixed costs. Mm -hmm. I used to have a national advertising campaign, huge fixed costs. Now I have social media. And, And so it's much easier for smaller brands to get the attention of consumers and to come to provenance. Similar in movie theaters, probably not the healthiest of industries. And so one intuition I have about whenever I see increases in price discrimination is that in part what it reflects is we're just fresh out of ideas. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's one way to read it. And I think that's true. I just think people got very sloppy and very sleepy about pricing for a long time. And I think they've woken up and inflation in their cost inputs made them think about pricing again. And now they're doing aggressive new things. But I think you're fundamentally right, which is there is a lot of margin protection going on and willingness to sacrifice volume growth in these settings. And that is a sign of reduced growth capacity or reduced ideas. And then separately, I think there's this issue of price discrimination, which I think is perhaps more interesting, which is it's not just about no ideas. It's about trying to use technology to pluck people off Mm -hmm. in weird ways. But I think (laughs) it's a lot harder than people understand it to be. And I think it leads to lots of effects, as is the case in airlines, which are not necessarily terribly good. (laughs) And so watching how that plays out, I think, is going to be really fascinating. And I think there's another piece of this, Felix, which is you could do things over the last 12 months that you may not be able to do anymore. And so what happens when you can't push on price as much as you used to be able to push? Yes. And ultimately, like in the example of airlines, much of this might benefit intermediaries that allow consumers to compare prices across many different brands. So the rise of Amazon, the rise of all the intermediaries in the travel space, Uh, Then all of a sudden, before you know it, you share those precious margins with new players that have newfound clout. Because in particular for product categories where I'm highly uncertain about the degree of price discrimination, where I think, oh my God, there might be an amazing deal somewhere out there. How do I find out? Not by going to my favorite brand, but by going to one of these intermediaries. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Anyway, it should be something fun to watch. Yeah, fascinating. I don't know, Felix. I feel like I'd love to hear more about your stories you're willing to watch, but I feel like it would be great to kind of hear from some friends, Felix. Oh, I totally agree. Because, I mean, yes, I am curious what you'll be watching, but just think about all the people we had on the podcast for the entire year. Wouldn't it be 
totally fascinating if we could hear from them what they'll be watching, what they find interesting. Yeah, I mean, like Young Me, for example. The story I'm going to be watching this summer is the one that everyone's talking about, which is generative AI. And in particular, I'm going to be looking at three dimensions of the story. The first is just the state of play. One of the amazing things about this technology is from week to week to see how rapidly it's advancing, how the video capabilities are changing on an almost week-to-week basis, how the image capabilities are changing on an almost week-to-week basis. The second dimension I'm going to be watching is the ripple effects on other companies. And so already you see so many companies out there pivoting either their business models, pivoting their strategy, pivoting the way they think about their internal functions and their capabilities and everything from how they think about talent to how they think about their operational execution to incorporate the new world of generative AI. A good example just today as I record this is Reddit is at war with itself as a result of a ripple effect associated with the new world of generative AI. And you're going to see that again and again and again. And the third is to just watch how this begins to cascade through the investment cycle. And so we have lived through many investment cycles involving venture capital before. Right now, we appear to be at the beginning of a stage where everything has slowed down except for all of the investment that is pouring into generative AI. And as Mahir has often talked about on this podcast, sometimes these investment cycles play out in a very healthy way, and sometimes they play out in a very unhealthy way. And so a summer is a very short period of time, but given how rapidly this space is evolving, I would expect that by the end of the summer, we could already be in a very different place than we are right now. So that's one of the things I'll be watching this summer. No surprise, Young Me has her finger on the pulse of what's happening out there in companies. There are two things that really resonated with me in what she just explained. The first one is, yes, we have all of these technological advances, but very quickly, I'm convinced across different technologies, they will be commoditized. They will have very similar capabilities. It's increasing very quickly at this moment, as she explains, but very quickly we'll have lots of different technologies to choose from. And then I think the more interesting question in some sense is, how good are you at building products using this particular technology? And there we see dramatic differences already, where slapping a text box onto your website, yeah, maybe you can do that, but that's not going to be what makes you really successful. And so I'm paying a lot of attention to companies' ability to turn this technology into usable products. And then the second dimension that I find completely fascinating is the regulatory environment and how quickly it changes. EU Parliament has now just passed what they call the AI Act, which I think is globally the first really serious attempt to regulate AI. And it comes with really important and fascinating restrictions. So for instance, if passed the way Parliament envisions it at this moment in time, there will be no biometric surveillance in Europe. Mm. They will not engage in predictive policing. One of the most fascinating stipulations, I think, is that you have to train the algorithm in a way that it does not produce illegal content. Right. Sounds trivial, yeah. super, super complicated to <laughs> yeah. implement. So on all of these fronts, regulatory, product-wise, she's so right. That's one of the big stories of the summer of 2023. I agree. And well beyond that, potentially, I think 
two things strike me about it, Felix. The first, on your first point, as this situation has evolved over the last six or eight months since really ChatGPT became well-known, I've become more convinced of the transformational nature of what is happening from a technological perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think the disruption, we saw it a little bit in the education market with Chegg, the disruption that it's going to have to existing business models is pretty massive. And that doesn't mean everyone wins. It means there's going to be winners and losers, to your point. And I think watching that happen will be fascinating. I am still concerned about Google and understanding how Google will respond. I think you're much more sanguine about this than I am, but I think that's one place to watch it. But just as I've become more convinced about how interesting the technology is, I've also become more convinced that financial markets are more divorced from reality on it. (laughs) You know, for the reason in part that you said, which is that First, it's not clear if any of this is not going to be commoditized. And the run-up that we have seen in the last six months that has basically been concentrated in big tech and has been AI-driven, both in public securities, but to Young Mi's point, also in private securities, has just been massive. Now, some of these cases are at least potentially justifiable. So I think NVIDIA is a good example where people conceive of it no longer as a hardware play, but as a software Mm -hmm, play because mm -hmm. of their tools that they put on top of their chips. But man, there are several hoops to jump through to get you to understand what's happening in financial markets with respect to AI. (laughs) And so watching that is going to be the other piece of it. Because if it turns out that everything takes longer, and if it turns out there are not just winners, but lots of losers, sorting through that in the next several months, and certainly the next year, is going to be really interesting to watch. So just as the technology is proving robust, I think that in some sense, the financial markets are proving even more divorced from reality. Is it more a story of winners or losers, or is it more a story of a bubble? You know, I confess, it looks to me a lot more like the latter. Of course, it's hard to disentangle those two, because if a winner isn't really a winner, that winner can be really big. But what we see capitalized now is a lot of people winning. Yeah, And that's the issue. And that looks like disk drive phenomena from the 1980s and, you know, dot-com phenomena from the late 1990s. It looks just like that where lots of people are being capitalized as winners, which can't, in some sense, really be true. But that should be a really fun one to watch. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I really loved hearing from a friend of the show. I think, in particular... I recall quite fondly hearing from Dolly Chug from NYU and Lane Higgins from the Wall oh, Street Journal. the sports episode. Yes. I wonder what stories they'll be watching this summer. I have been thinking a lot about women's sports. I'm just off from a great few days in Oklahoma City at the Women's College Softball World Series, and it was a blast. If you love sports, if you love athleticism, if you love entertainment, if you love great crowds, if you love drama, everything that sports has to offer was there. And it really has me thinking about this tiny fraction of investment and capital that flows into women's sports that is growing now and what a good bet it is for the future. It's way overdue. There's great stuff happening, and I'm excited to see what happens in the coming months and years. I am a self-professed swim nerd, and I 
cannot wait for all of the national and international competitions that are going to take place this summer in the swim world, mainly because this is our table setter for who's going to become a star in the Paris Olympics. You know, there's a couple young swimmers from Romania, France, Canada, the United States that I think are going to have a little bit of breakout summers. You know, U.S. team trials is in June in Indianapolis, and then in July through August, Worlds is in Japan. And I cannot wait to see all the fast swimming and, you know, see who comes out as the next big thing. It's even wonderful to hear in Lane Higgins' voice her excitement about all these swim events. I think that's the definition of a true fan. What's interesting to me is this emphasis on new stars. And that, I think, is completely fascinating in sports more generally, how maybe not the deeply devoted fans to a particular sport, I'm guessing for them, it doesn't really matter that much whether you have a well-known star, whether there is a particular constellation that is interesting. But when you think about what Federer and others have done for tennis, mm -hmm. they're really just on the back of a few superstars. You drag an entire sport and sport category into the public limelight. Right. And then people start to understand how tennis works and why it's interesting. And I think what she's describing is sort of this next phase for women's swimming, where for some time we haven't had, I think, a star that really reached the masses. And if that can happen, it'll be really amazing with enormous economic consequences also. The latest example is obviously Messi's move to enter Miami, yes. both a social media sensation. Tickets, I read, went from less than $100 to see them play to now somewhere in the $2,500 category, <laughs> basically as a result of one person's involvement. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think what's interesting about both Dolly and Lane's comments is they are also pointing us towards in some sense, smaller settings for watching sports, mm, drawing attention yes. to what's happening with women's sports teams and the amateurism of the swimming world. And, you know, with Paris coming up, there's just going to be lots of opportunities to see really world-class talent in your country perform at very, very high levels. And so, you know, going to like a big sports game to see Messi, that's exciting. But, you know, the reality is, Going to any sports venue where you're actually quite close and you're watching teams that are competing, it's actually extremely exciting. Yeah. It's like a Friday night lights kind of experience. And so I think it's just a great thing to think about for the summer, which is trying to get to an amateur event. I think the other thing that your comments just triggered in me is the other massive sports story, which I don't think we've understood the full consequences of, is this Saudi LIV live golf oh, yes. PGA thing. <laughs> I mean, man, what a story. And that is one which is not over. Just briefly, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund backed this renegade golf association called 54 or LIV, and they changed the sport. <laughs> and then they merged with the PGA and the PGA had sworn them as enemies. And on a dime, they changed. And now, of course, politicians are looking into it. So that whole story and this remarkable way in which just with a pool of capital, they have transformed golf. Yeah, Golf is traditionally like the 72-hole game. They want to make it a 54-hole game. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of what's happened in cricket, what's happened in lots of places where 
a pool of capital can just change the game. Yeah. And that is going to be extremely fascinating to watch. And you see the pull of stars, right? In competition between the two golf exactly. organizations. It's all about who can you get. Exactly. And to your point, Felix, you raised tennis and Bill Ackman's efforts in tennis. Yes. I don't know if you remember in our sports episode. And this has something familiar with that, which is basically being a golf superstar is great. But if you're 40th in the world, it's tough. And so what LIV did is basically underwrite a lot of talent and guarantee salaries. And so now yeah. the PJ is going to have to go through that. So to your point about stars and how the rents get shared with everyone else, what they're going to try to do in golf is change the rules of the game. And that's exactly what you were hinting at would happen in tennis. Yeah. Of course, this wouldn't be complete if we didn't hear from Sarah Green Carmichael of Bloomberg and Kristen Mugford from HBS, yeah. who also are thinking about some stories for us. This summer, I'm going to be watching the travel industry. There's a few things here I'm especially interested in, given that consumer demand is expected to finally be above pre-pandemic levels. First, can the airlines keep up or are we in for another season of baggage delays and flight cancellations? Second, can we learn anything about the state of work-life balance from how people are behaving this summer? You know, are people still blending their vacation with a little bit of remote work? Or are people hungry for a cleaner dividing line between their job and their leisure time? Finally, I'm just interested in what the summer travel season can tell us about the state of the economy. Consumers keep telling pollsters that they're worried about a recession, and yet then they just keep going out and spending. So I'm curious to see if we get any clarity on that from how people are actually behaving. Summertime means big budget movie releases, and I'm so excited to see what we learn about the future of movie theaters this summer. As you know, movie theaters were hit hard by COVID, attendance dropped, and movie productions were stalled and delayed. And this is the first summer we're actually back to a full slate of big releases. So I am so curious to see if people go back to the theater experience or if streaming and COVID have forever changed how we want to enjoy movies. And my guess is what happens this summer may have big implications on the movie industry for the future. Curious to get your thoughts. I got to say, Felix, hearing from all these folks was a great idea. Yeah, it's so nice, right? <laughs> it's like a little family reunion. <laughs> exactly. So obviously both Sarah and Kristen have got really interesting ideas. I would say that the most interesting thing about both of them is I just think these services businesses, so travel in particular, but also theaters and entertainment, it's really where we're going to get the tell on the macro economy. Mm -hmm. So travel has mm -hmm. just been booming. And yet we're not really convinced, at least markets are not really convinced, that it's a permanent kind of shift. Yeah. Yet travel companies keep saying there's like no signs of abating demand. And similarly with theaters, there's a little bit of a macro tell there too, which is just this desire to kind of go out and enjoy services. So I think those are two great industries to watch, not just because of their effect on the overall economy or the tell on consumer spending, but also, frankly, because of inflation. Mm -hmm. So the most persistent piece of inflation, which looks like it's been abating quite nicely in the U.S. at least, is services inflation. Yeah. And so we really need to break the back of services inflation if we want to break the back of inflation generally. So in addition to just being great industries to follow because many of us are engaged in travel and entertainment. It just happens to be that this summer, it's also going to be a great tell on the macro economy. You're so right. And reading the tea leaves, what all of this means for the macro economy is difficult because you have all of these idiosyncrasies for each of these services industry at 
one at the same time. So, for right. instance, in airline travel, the supply chain issues are not really over. They're over for many other parts of the economy, but the delivery of new planes, every airline will tell you, we're waiting for planes, we're nervous about will they be delivered on time, will they be delivered at all, and then even in spare parts. So spare parts for engines still turn out to be quite scarce. And as a result, we don't quite know is that still pandemic overhang right. or is it a shift in how these businesses will perform in the future? In the case of the movie theater industry, I'm particularly nervous about AMC. Yeah. I don't really know <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> they lost $500 million over the course of the last 12 months. Even their own predictions say that revenue relative to 2019 will probably be half a billion less than they saw prior to the pandemic. This is the fifth year where they lost money. So there it's maybe more a story of substitutes. Mm -hmm. I have a personal story where I went to the theater and, you know, it was nice to see the big screen, much better sound than I have at home. But at the same time, I sat right next to a really unruly group of teenagers who didn't pay that much <laughs> attention to the yeah. movie. And it was mostly about sharing Instagram stories and right. talking with one another. And it was a little bit of a shock that I had forgotten what it means to maybe watch a movie with many other people. And that would be a very different experience. And so even in the case of the movie industry, how much are we really looking at substitution? How much are we looking at overall demand that will tell us something about the health of the economy? Not obvious to me at all. Yeah. AMC also has some idiosyncrasies associated with it. Yes. They also are a poster child of the meme stock frenzy and the aftermath of that. Yes. And so watching how that plays out, my instincts are that it is going to be a viable industry for some players that are maybe providing niche kinds of theater experiences, mm -hmm. but it is hard to see any kind of a return to pre-pandemic levels. But by the way, this is also just an interesting juncture to just mention that streaming will also be fascinating oh, just yeah. because of the pricing changes that people are going through, the sharing password things that Netflix is doing. And by the way, the remarkable run-up in those stock prices. Yeah. So that's also an angle on that piece of this, which should be super fascinating. One last thing, Felix, about your comment about the airlines. The other reason why airlines are fantastic to watch is the labor market. Oh, yeah. They have constraints on pilots. Yeah. And watching how they handle those labor supply shortages also is fascinating for understanding the broader economy. That's the final window, I think, on it, which is really interesting. It'll be interesting to see if you go through an extended period where you just cannot basically meet demand, whether that teaches you something about price discipline in the first place. Right. That's been my experience over the last couple of months, is just seeing reduced capacity, seeing remarkable prices. But the puzzle, Felix, is airports still feel like more chaotic than ever. <laughs> anyway, I don't yes. know how that all happens. Thank God for capacity constraints. <laughs> right, exactly. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. And then, of course, episodes that I have such fond memories for is when Jill Avery and Amy Bernstein were with us. And we wanted to make sure to hear from them what they will be watching this summer. I'll spend the next few months following the growing wave of consumer boycotts of brands who are engaging with social issues. Brands like Bud Light, Target, and now Lego have recently been targets of boycotts following their engagement with LGBTQ plus consumers. Similar backlash to what we saw several years ago when Nike engaged Colin Kaepernick in its 30th anniversary Just Do It campaign. Brand activism has become a core strategy for today's brands, and consumers are demanding that brands stand up in the face of the important issues of our time. But the last few months have been difficult for brands. Will brands pull back from brand activism in the face of these boycotts, or will brands remain true to their values? I'm fascinated to watch it play out. One story I'll be watching concerns the labor union movement in the United States. It's been growing modestly over the last couple of years. We now have a high-profile strike with the Writers Guild. But at the same time, we are dealing with economic turmoil. There have been widespread layoffs. And the Supreme Court seems to be pretty anti-union. So I'm very curious to see whether the union movement can continue to grow or not. Brand activism is one of the really fascinating stories to watch. I completely agree with Jill. One thing that strikes me as particularly interesting is we get these really big stories and I think sometimes significant changes in market share in for a particular set of companies and a particular set of products. So mm-hmm. Modelo now being the number one beer brand in the US, displacing Bud Light, that's pretty remarkable. But at the same time, it's also interesting to see just how few boycotts there are. Given all the pronouncements that you get, given all the brands that take some stance on social issues, I haven't really done any research on this, but my casual impression is very few brands get a lot of attention, their stance becomes very controversial. So part of what's so interesting to think about the future of brand activism is, should we think of it as... And if things go wrong, they can go horribly wrong and you will lose market share and suffer endlessly. Or will we think of it as actually this is on average something that is 
probably good for employer branding, is good for internal dynamics of the firm, and the chances that it gets any sort of attention from the public at large, those chances are actually quite minimal. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what I should think, but it's definitely an interesting difference in how you view the future of brand activism. And indeed, I think Jill's pointing us to this summer because I think we'll learn a lot about the persistence of these kinds of issues. Is it a flash in the pan, these boycotts, or do they have long-lasting impact on brands? And I think we'll know in the case of Bud Light and perhaps Target in six months. Yeah. But we can't quite tell yet. I confess, I think the comparison Jill made to Nike and Colin Kaepernick is really interesting, which is part of the lesson here is to really I think, understand your customers. And I think the issues that companies have run into is because they've somehow lost track of their customers. So taking positions, I think, is remarkable and wonderful or can be. But the issue with the broader corporate purpose movement is it's got to be consistent with your understanding of who your customers are. Mm -hmm. And so I think Nike managed that incredibly well. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. sure these other folks have. Yeah. I don't know if they've kind of thought it through in the same way. On Amy's issues on the unions, I think it's fascinating to watch. I confess, I have looked at some of these stories about renewed union activism as being quite idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. So there are these moments where people talk about, for example, Amazon or Starbucks. Those are kind of two, I think, poster child movements. But frankly, it feels like it's happening on the fringe. It feels like it's happening in pretty isolated ways. Mm -hmm. So Amy's raising the possibility that there's some kind of broader revival of those labor efforts. And that, I think, is super interesting. So far, my instincts are that it feels a little idiosyncratic and on the margins. But I think over the summer, we'll learn if there's a little bit more action there. Yeah. And maybe you can read it as sort of a last-ditch effort to save unionization and to save collective action on the part of employees. What's really interesting to me is across so many of these situations, it's not the unions themselves that instigate the collective action. It's a particular person at a Starbucks. Right. It's a particular person at a Amazon warehouse. And I think that in part reflects that unions themselves have given up on organizing labor the way they used to in the 40s and 50s. Much of their attention is today on the political process, which I think makes a lot of sense if you look at overall unionization in the country and the chances that you could really move things in a substantial way, say, via strikes the way we have it in France. Right. I think that's just super, super unlikely in the context of the United States. And so focusing on politics and focusing on improving working conditions via legislative means, I think, and lobbying makes a ton of sense for the unions. But it leaves open this gap. It leaves open that, oh, what if we wanted to unionize? And so... It's both a sign of the strengths of the labor relations at the very local level where people get together and try to improve the conditions under which they have work. Mm -hmm. But it's maybe also a sign at one and the same time of the weakness of the unionization yeah. movement. In some sense, Felix, as you're raising, the more interesting place to look is Europe and the UK and France because those places are facing really severe kinds of labor issues, certainly in the UK. And yet, it hasn't been manifest in very significant victories yet. Mm -hmm. And so 
there have been some victories, but there's just been persistent issues that are not really getting the traction that one might have imagined them to get. And of course, European inflation and cost of living issues are much worse than in the US. They have not arrested nearly as quickly as they have in the US. So watching that persist over the next couple of months, I think will also be really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. One sector of the economy that we paid a lot more attention to this season was healthcare. And it's great to know that both Katie Milkman from Wharton and Charlotte Howard from The Economist are thinking a little bit about healthcare this summer. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that one thing I am really interested in is what's going on at Amazon with providing all kinds of medical services. I'm fascinated by the fact that they introduced a prescription subscription that helps Prime members take medications more affordably and that they also purchased one medical earlier this year in order to provide some primary care services. I am really intrigued to see where this is going and whether or not consumers will be excited to get their health care in various ways through Amazon, just as they purchase so many things through Amazon. One thing I'm watching this summer is the Federal Trade Commission. So under the leadership of Lena Khan, the FTC has become more aggressive with big tech notably, but also with healthcare. And there is a continuing investigation by the FTC of pharmacy benefit managers. These are the middlemen in America's drug market. And what's interesting about this to me is that to date, most debates over drug pricing in America have centered on payments by government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and even then it's been quite limited. And I'm curious if the FTC's investigation of pharmacy benefit managers leads to an even broader disruption in how Americans pay for their drugs. Charlotte picked an amazing story. I think it's to some extent underreported. We don't talk about it often enough because it's a little bit in the weeds. (laughs) These pharma benefit managers are not so visible. We tend to focus much more on pharma companies. But at the same time, when you look at how pricing in the market for medications has changed in the United States. I think it's high time to ask, what exactly is the role of these intermediaries? How exactly do they influence pricing? To just give one striking statistic, if you go back about 10 years and you look at launch prices, what are the prices at which a new medication is first introduced to the market? You had about 10% of drugs that were priced at $150,000 a year and more. Mm-hmm. Today, that metric stands at 50%. Half the drugs are initially priced at levels that just seem astonishing to say the least right and i think one of the really big questions is what's the role of pharmacy benefit managers in both encouraging these really high price levels but also sustaining them over time one really interesting dynamic is to look at what happens with pharma rebates Mm -hmm. so as you know pharma companies will often offer generous rebates in order to make drugs more affordable These rebates then flow to the pharmacy benefit managers, and there's no regulation that says they have to pass them on. So maybe they pass them on, maybe they don't pass them on. A big part of the investigation will have to do with what exactly are the dynamics around these rebates. Similarly, there's a dynamic called price spreading, Uh where the pharmacy benefit managers pay independent pharmacies lower prices over time. But it's not clear that these lower prices that they get from independent pharmacies to say, 
if you're CVS, one of the big pharmacy benefit managers, and you pay independent pharmacies less over time, where does that money go? At this moment in time, I don't think we really know. And we hope that the FTC investigations will shed light on many of these pricing dynamics that have an incredible influence on the cost of healthcare in the United States. Yeah, I'm so glad we are spending more time thinking about healthcare, like on this podcast and more generally, because it's so fascinating. And I think, of course, that's part of the answer to Katie's interest in Amazon, which is Amazon's going into this because they're going where the money is. Yep. It's 20% of GDP <laughs> or whatever it is, and you need to play in there if you're going to continue to grow. And it's interesting, particularly on this subscription prescription thing, that they're going exactly to the place where these PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers have been operating. So watching them compete with the PBMs is going to be the other piece that's going to be interesting. But Felix, I think the particular thing that strikes me about the FTC action is I have not been a big fan of a lot of these FTC actions because of the w nature of some of their antitrust claims in the merger market. But I got to tell you, this is exciting and fun for exactly the reason you said, which is it is so opaque. It reminds me of our discussion of the Google antitrust case, actually, oh, yes. you know, which is yeah. how opaque pricing is in those settings. Yeah. The attention, as Charlotte mentions, has been manifest on, well, what's the list price? It's not actually necessarily the most interesting thing that's going on. It is about the opacity of the market and about making it more transparent, which to your point is almost impossible today in US drug pricing. Mm -hmm. So this is an area where I'm genuinely excited to see what they do. And it seems like a really great allocation of time and energy to kind of cracking the code not necessarily on antitrust in a traditional sense, but just on price transparency, which is exactly in part what they were doing with Google as well. Yeah. So just that emphasis, I think, is exactly right and should be really interesting to watch. It'll be very interesting to see the longer-term consequences even for pharmaceutical companies. I have to confess, I'm sort of of two minds when I think about pharma companies. Just think about COVID without pharma. Oh my God, right. what a disaster that would have been. But then now to see them have this concentrated lobbying effort to make it more difficult for Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate even these list prices, ah, that does not feel right. And so in some sense, if we tilt the possibilities towards true success in this space will come from better medication, better taking care of patients, and the gaming, the gimmicks, the pricing discounts and rebates and how they're shuffled and how they flow in the industry, if that becomes a little harder to do, and as a result, a little less attractive, I think longer term, we will look back and say this orientation towards science, forcing these companies to really excel in what they do best, which is the science. That, I think, will benefit everyone in the long run. Absolutely. But to do that, I'm reminded of the saying, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Yep. You need transparency on pricing, and that is what it's all about. So that should be super fun to watch. Fabulous. Another great way to think about the summer is to watch these really specific firm stories mm. about companies that you might really care about. And Liz Hoffman from Semaphore and Christina Wallace from HBS have, I think, two great ones for really interesting companies that are at interesting junctures. The story I'm watching this summer is what on earth is happening at Goldman Sachs. I covered the firm for the Wall Street Journal for five years, starting in 2016, and I still keep a pretty close eye on it, and I've never seen it so angsty and lost. 
They are beating a hasty retreat from this foray onto Main Street into consumer banking and getting back to what they do well, which is Wall Street stuff like trading and deal making. But this has been a seven-year round trip that costs money for sure, billions of dollars in losses stacking up here, but also morale and prestige and mystique and a lot of the sort of specialness that made Goldman elite for so long. I think they knew they were risking some of that when they went into this business, but they figured that the trade-off, mostly around post-2008 regulations, made it worth it. I think one thing that they just never contemplated was that they'd be bad at it. It's hard to see how performance, which is always the places kind of force field, helps them out here. They've got commercial real estate exposure, which is getting bad and getting worse. There are no IPOs. There's no M&A deals. There's new capital requirements coming down the pike. That is all bad news for Goldman Sachs. The story I'm following this summer is whether Blue Sky is actually going to take off. In the eight months since Elon Musk closed his acquisition of Twitter, it has, to put it bluntly, become a disaster. And in the meantime, many of the active users have moved to other platforms looking for that magic in a bottle. We've all tried Mastodon, Post, Substack, Notes, a number of platforms, and none of them have really caught on, except now it seems that Blue Sky might have what it takes. Blue Sky is interesting, of course, because it was founded by Jack Dorsey, one of the original founders of Twitter. So it has maybe the potential of making it, but uh, too early to be seen. So whether we can ever capture the magic of Twitter again in a new platform or whether that era might be gone, that's what I'm following. In addition to these broader industry things, I think focusing on a couple of companies is a really fun thing to do this summer. And I think Liz is right to draw our attention to Goldman. We did a segment on Goldman way back, I think eight or nine months ago. And I confess, I'm kind of with her. It's just been this period of stagnation. And the part of the story that I think is fascinating is the board. I think it's really a question of governance at this point. And I'm just fascinated by the fact that the board seems so ineffective in policing what looks like some really bad choices. So I think there's a reckoning to be had there. And within the financial industry, it's harder to imagine a sharper fall from grace than what Goldman has gone through in the last decade. And so it is both going to be hard to recover, as Liz said, because of these underlying issues, which are persistent, but also it's fundamentally a question of governance. So seeing when that gets rectified is going to be really interesting. And speaking of governance, of course, Twitter is, of course, the absence of any kind of (laughs) (laughs) functions of governance, which is you have one person who has made a set of decisions. And I've been reminded of our conversation about Twitter, Felix. I can't remember which conversation about Twitter, but I think you once said (laughs) something about how it would devolve into like a Craigslist kind of a thing. Very low innovation, but just kind of there. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. The things that I've noticed about Twitter are just how... The algorithms have changed and how video and how much content they're pushing that is video content that is mm-hmm. kind of TikTok-y and they are just looking for views. So watching the new CEO come in who has ad experience primarily, seeing if she can rebuild that business, I think is going to be completely fascinating. But both feel to me like a little bit of slow motion train wrecks, which are horrible to watch, but (laughs) there is some interest in doing that sometimes in a very weird way. Yeah. What do you make of it? 
I think I may have been wrong about Twitter and Craigslist in the sense that they haven't really found that steady state model yet. Right. Where you could say it's not the biggest thing on the earth, but it's doing what it's been doing for a very long time and it seems very profitable. Mm -hmm. So that is still a little far-fetched. At the same time, what's particularly interesting to me about all this excitement around Blue Sky is that it's essentially at this point in time a poorly working Twitter clone. Yeah. Same kind of functionality. It's the same kind of ideas. And there are differences in technology and there are differences in how they talk about how they would like the service to evolve over time. So they would like it to be more open so that, say, posts can be shared across apps. They would like it to be federated in the sense that you and I could build a community, you and I could build an app right. that lives within Blue Sky. But all of this is future talk. So the current fascination, the current attraction of Blue Sky, I think, and somewhat worrisome, is that... It's the thing that is most like Twitter out there. And yeah. so people flock to it. And perhaps much of the conversation has to do just with scarcity. Mm -hmm. They're in beta. You need an invite in order to join it. Right. And these invites are really hard to come by. In fact, the other day I saw someone offering an invite on eBay at some price that I don't quite <laughs> remember now. But maybe what we're looking at is just scarcity and curiosity. But even if it does take off, it says something about the basic Twitter model that maybe people have just gotten so used to it that it's hard for them to imagine anything else. Yeah. And then how much better is the world off with yet another Twitter-like service? <laughs> I'm not so convinced that's good news. And I'm a little bit of two minds even for the Goldman story. I totally see how it's both shocking and to some extent fascinating to see them fail in consumer finance. Because it's always, you know, their reputation is a little bit, that's the easier part of the finance industry. It's right. less glamorous. Right. It's like the thing that everybody can do. It's commoditized because it doesn't really take amazing skill. And then to see that someone like Goldman Sachs cannot pull it off is quite remarkable. But on the flip side, the stock is up by 50% since he took reins. And so I think what we can't forget is two of the really big changes at Goldman is the share of the firm that is held by the people working at the firm has dropped dramatically since its IPO. I think it's less than 10% at this moment in time. Right. And so when you think about what's the degree to which management will take risks, well, the fewer owners you have in your rows the more risks you're more likely going to take. And maybe that puts the headlight exactly what you said, Mihir. That gives stronger prominence to what's the role of governance and how good is governance at the firm. So that sounds exactly right. But relative to other big banks, relative to, say, a general banking index that is probably down by 10 20% over this period of time, Goldman has done well. And so while there are very loud critics... You can say a thing or two in favor of the company's stewardship at this moment in time. Yeah, it's always tricky, right? Because this is kind of one of those games that people play, which is, who do you compare them to? Yeah. <laughs> you can be assured that yeah. senior management and boards are expert at picking the right comparator group. <laughs> but, you know, Morgan Stanley, which is going to go through a leadership transition this summer, is an interesting comparison. And he, 
I think James Gorman has done a really remarkable job yeah. in that yeah. firm. And that's I the agree. most directly relevant comparison. But you're absolutely right. You can create a scenario where people can feel quite good about David Solomon. It is interesting that the broader financial industry, and especially the big banks, I'm just struck by how they are dominated by people who have been in their jobs for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's true at Bank of America. That's true at JP Morgan. That's been true at Morgan Stanley. It's true mm -hmm. prior to Solomon at Goldman. It's just a real question about governance, which I think is an aftermath of Sarbanes-Oxley and the financial crisis, where basically the government is the only governance that these institutions face. Yeah. And that can be a problem in this way. So super interesting to watch. Super interesting. And then, of course, this episode would not be complete, unimaginable, with our good friend Ravi Abdelal. This topic is a heavy one, but certainly of the moment. Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive in the war has begun. The coming weeks and months will, I think, shape in some fundamental ways how we can finally begin to imagine the contours of peace in Ukraine. Whether one side will declare victory or a settlement emerges, all of this will begin to come clear over the summer. So that's what is much on my mind. So, Rawi is so correct to ground us in, of course, one of the most important realities of the world today, which is a land war in Europe, which has continued. And watching that play out, I think he's absolutely right, is going to be incredibly important. It's interesting to think whether we will know something by the end of the summer on this front. Mm -hmm. Meaning, is this a really critical juncture or is this just the latest moment in what looks like a long protracted struggle. And so I don't know enough to know, but I think my instincts are a little bit more towards this long protracted struggle. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the situation is highly unpredictable. Mm -hmm. This could end in some very rapid fashion. So we'll have to wait and see on that. It's also interesting because I think we learn a little bit about ourselves as the summer evolves and as we see how successful Ukrainian troops will be. Is our support for Ukraine really deeply grounded in a sense of fairness and the right of nations to make their own choices and uh, you know, safeguarding and defending independence? How much of it does it have to do with wanting to be on the side of the country that wins? Mm. So at the moment it looks like Ukraine struggles. Are we withholding support, maybe just not being quite as much generous? There are all of these big questions around where support comes from and support really both from politicians. How do they think about their chances of being reelected as a result of having been critical of Ukraine, fully supportive of Ukraine, but also of public opinion more generally? Yeah. Is there both in Ukraine, but maybe also among many of the Eastern European countries and people in the United States? We're getting tired of the war and we wish it would end tomorrow in particular because the cost in human lives is just incredible it's just staggering and to the extent that the summer is also an opportunity to rethink what are plausible longer term goals of the struggle of the conflict in ukraine i think it's a good moment for us to reflect on 
what we want and what longer term positive outcomes might be. I think you're absolutely right to highlight that the counteroffensive itself is important, but if it's being used as a litmus test for the supporters mm -hmm. of Ukraine as to what the long-term viability of their effort is, it can become quite self-reinforcing yep. in the sense that if it's successful, the success feeds it with more success because there's more reinforcements. And if it fails, it becomes an occasion for allies to opt out. So the counteroffensive per se is, I think, interesting, but I think it is that it's being used as a litmus test by many people. Just to conclude on a light note, Felix, I just have to say, Rawi's voice. <laughs> I mean, we're all just amateurs. It's like a mix of yes. like James Earl Jones and Barry White. I don't know, but what a sonorous voice. Yes, I always feel like I can hear him thinking, yeah. which I can't say of too many people. Exactly, certainly not for the two of us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right, so two final stories from each of us, Felix. You got one last one? I do. I'm going to watch energy markets very carefully this summer. And obviously, this is in part related to the Russia-Ukraine story. But I'm thinking more domestically also. We just got the final announcement of a brand new market for carbon tax credits in the United States. Yeah, This was an tricky little issue in that the government for a long time now has provided incentives to invest in solar and wind. And the incentives came in the form of tax credits. But to the extent that solar and wind were not super, super profitable for many developers of these facilities to begin with, the tax credit didn't really help that much because you didn't have taxes to pay in the first place. There was a clunky system to turn them into financial advantage via tax equity financing, but it had very high transactions costs. And so now... We have an announcement that makes it clear that if you have tax credits that are not used, you can sell them off to other companies and other companies can take advantage of it. And I'm watching two things very carefully. The first one is, what is the price of these advantages? So you would think it's trivial if I sell you $100 in tax advantage, how much are you going to pay for it? Well, $100 is not going to be exactly right. So for instance, the legal liability associated with the tax credits will go from the seller to the buyer, which probably implies some sort of a discount on the price that you're willing to pay. One big question that then tells us something about the effectiveness of these incentives is that if the discount is really large, in the end, there's not going to be all that much capital. And the second reason why I'm thinking carefully about the capital that is available for alternative energy investments is because this is also the time when we see big oil pull back from alternative energy. I think it's most pronounced in Europe, where both Shell and BP have now made it very clear that their immediate and maybe even medium-term future is all in oil and gas, and alternative investments will play maybe not a very big role. It's to some extent also true for U.S.-based companies, although they were never quite as invested in wind and solars as some of the European conglomerates. But seeing, are we going to a dearth of capital where we think, oh my God, we're at the edge of making all of these 
technology is commercially valuable, but we just don't have many investors who are excited about these opportunities? Or these new markets, are they really powerful enough to allow us to build out the energy infrastructure of the future? I think that's going to be one of the major stories this summer. I think you're so right to point us in this direction, Felix. These tradable tax credits are incredibly important. And watching this market be born, if you're an economist, is like super fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Watch how prices yeah, get discovered. So <laughs> but it's also a reminder of how important tax credits have been in different situations over the last several decades. You know, sulfur dioxide was, of course, the major text case in the United yes. States, uh -huh. which was remarkably, I think, successful for creating the right incentives. Very successful. In the U.S., we've done low-income housing with tax credits, which has been a little bit more, a little more unclear mixed. if that was yeah. a good idea or not. But watching what happens with carbon is, of course, the big test of all. And so watching that, I think, is going to be really fascinating. And it relates to my final story to watch a little bit, at least, which is oh, okay. the other market to watch and we did a segment on this way back in October, I think, is interest rates are just going to continue to be fascinating, I think, this summer. Oh, so yeah. we have gone through this remarkable experiment of really sharply rising rates. And the reality is we have just not seen as many bad things happen as one would have expected to mm -hmm. see. Now, of course, mm -hmm. we had the banking crisis, but really we just have not seen nearly as much happen in emerging markets, in even markets like the UK where gilts have risen and continue to rise now, and in the US. So I think it's going to be a real tell this summer that if the economy emerges without much damage from these really sustained interest rate hikes, we will now know that in some sense, many of the things that we thought we knew about monetary policy were not correct. Yeah. <laughs> and we will have seen just a remarkable engineering of what is kind of termed a soft landing that I don't think anybody could have anticipated eight months yeah. ago. <laughs> so watching what happens with interest rates and seeing how it ripples through corporate balance sheets, how it ripples through corporate investment, I think is going to be a fantastic story to watch this summer. Yeah. And maybe you know that most important trade-off in monetary policy that we have been thinking about forever is, can the Fed really do two things at one and the same time? Right. Keep price stability and then keep the labor market healthy. And now, <laughs> somehow, remarkably, inflation is coming down, just like we had hoped. It's unclear whether the most difficult stretch is still ahead of us or if it's behind us. Right. But at the same time, the trade-off that we all fear, that it would lead to really significant unemployment, so far, not so much. Yeah. So maybe that trade-off that we feared for so long, at least in these circumstances, not quite as important as we always thought. So Felix, what are we going to do about recommendations? Oh, actually, this is a great test for everyone <laughs> because you will have to wait. What? We have <laughs> our traditional mega episode full with wonderful recommendations for the summer, but we won't add it to this already long episode. That's the episode that we say for next week. Fantastic. And maybe we should try to get a guest. Oh, someone special? Maybe. Let's see. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.